What up, people? Guy Adama here, always joined by Dan Nathan. And be it that it's Wednesday, I know you folks are saying Carter Braxton Worth has to be there somewhere. He is. Don't fret. He'll be in here in a minute. Market call today. We're going to put 30 minutes on the clock. We're trying to stick to it, although uh, these days it's very hard to get in everything we need to say in 30 minutes. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by Tomorrow Dan. And we are powered by Open Exchange. Jay Powell testifying today, along with Roger Goodell, which is a complete comedy. But please, Dan, how are you? Oh, there you go. There's two commissions that you're not kind of down with a little bit. You probably were a big Tagliabue guy. Were you a big Tagliabue well, guy? Well, it's funny you say that, and I'm not dropping names, but since you brought it up, I actually know Mr. Tagliabue. He's a Georgetown graduate, and prior to Patrick Ewing attending and graduating from Georgetown, Paul Tagliabue was the all-time leading rebounder in Georgetown basketball history. I honestly, that is a fun fact. I did not know that, but I actually have, I think an NFL football with Pete Rozelle on it, like his little digits, you know what I mean? Like his little John Hancock, but that's from the eighties guy. I mean, you are from the eighties. I mean, you were an adult in the eighties to be very frank, but let's talk about is Jerome Powell, is he being an adult right here? Is he, he's at the Humphrey Hawkins. You probably knew Mr. Humphrey and Hawkins yeah, back in the I day. I knew both here. Humphrey and Hawkins. Ha- By Humphrey. the way, Hawkins Pool, in case you care, obviously the pool from Stranger Things season four out as we speak. I actually like Stranger Things, but that's neither here nor there. Um, is, is he doing a good job? He's doing the best he can. The questions that this poor person needs to field are extraordinarily painful, not political. Both sides seem to have their own resident imbeciles asking him (laughs) questions, but that's the world we live in. And you know what? You get the people you vote for and that you're entitled to, and and we have voted in some real winners on both sides of the aisle. But in terms of his testimony, I mean, what I took away with his use of blunt force or blunt tool in terms of taming the inflation that begging for for years. So I find that to be pretty interesting. All right. Well, there you go. I mean, listen, some of the headlines, you see them here. I don't think it's diverged too much from kind of some of the commentary from the meeting last week that the Fed had held here. But they're talking about, listen, there is a chance that these hikes put the economy in a recession. They're also talking about the economy being very strong. I think you and I would take issue with the fact of it being strong. We know what their dual mandate is, stable prices. They don't have that, but full unemployment, they do have that. And that's one of the reasons why I think that they have to tighten so aggressively here. The idea, though, that you know we are probably very much in a recession at the moment or you know one of these quarters in the next couple are going to be the thing that puts it over the edge. And then the question is how deep of a recession and how long and, you know, yesterday on this very market call guy, Dom, we were talking about what does it mean to you that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is finding some real resistance in and around those 2018 highs. We have a chart here of this. And listen, again, you know, we know where yields have gone in a very short period of time from 2 to north of 3%. So here we are. We're, we're kind of, you know, at that resistance level. But, man, that 200-day moving average, and again, you know, it would be an absolute disaster if yields were to come all the way back in towards that kind of 2% zone but what would that speak to you what would it be saying guy you know and again you talk about all the time the volatility in the 10-year yield we're down 13 bips today alone that's a big move on a, on a three handle there yeah it is no it's it's insanity actually and again i think people get tired of hearing me saying it but i'll say it again i mean stable prices I, i'm not quite sure what they're yeah. talking about in terms of stable prices because in terms of the bond market it's been anything but 
And again, another just typical 15 basis point move intraday in 10-year yields, which is pretty ridiculous. When you really think about it, it's absurd. You're talking about an instrument that when I used to do this for a living day in, day out, if it moved a couple basis points a week or a month, that would be considered a lot. Now we have 15 basis points moves in a day. And now I sound like the guy, you know, get off my yard type of thing. With that said, they clearly don't have stable prices in the bond market. The bond market is broken. To answer your question, if 10-year yields were to go to 2%, I mean, it ain't going to 2% because things are going so well. 2% 10-year yields mean the economy is ground to a halt and the stock market is probably cratering on the back of that. So I can see 10-year yields getting back sort of somewhere between 275 and 3. Down to 2 is catastrophic. But with that said... You're not going to get the commensurate move in the two-year. That's going to stay stubbornly high, yeah. I believe, right around this three and a quarter percent. So what does that mean, Dan? It means the yield curve inverts, and you figure it out from there. But that's where we're headed, and it's really at the feet of all these, mostly guys and some gals of our Federal Reserve. Yeah, and I guess the you know we're charged with figuring out what does it mean for stocks. <clears throat> you know, in general, I think you've made the point very clearly. It would not be something that would be that great for stocks because it would really mean that we are in a recession, that growth is slowing, and that the Fed, you know, is ultimately going to have to pivot as you think they will do. I don't think they're going to be lowering rates in 2022, but I do think that there's probably ways that they can kind of speak to the fact that they're done at least raising them in a meaningful manner, and maybe there's some other things that they could do to kind of get investors to start thinking about the fact. That you know valuations tied to mm-hmm. what yields are suggesting is going to be the case for the economy is something that where they're going to have to start pricing out, saying, "Listen, let's think about 2023. Let's talk about investor sentiment, though, guy. This is from our friends over at FactSet on the street accounts. You know, at the time in May when the market felt like it was getting a little kind of overdone to the downside, we were seeing readings about you know just low levels of bulls, right? And so some of the sentiment indicators that many investors track were were back there. You know, the bulls are dropping here if you look at the AAII. And again, it doesn't actually mean that we are due for a rally. We have tried to put in a little bit of a bottom here. What's your take? I know you think that 4,000 could be in the cards for the S&P 500. At some point, maybe some of these individuals, and you got to look at this one, guy. You know, there's some thoughts here that, you know, the first half of this year being about as bad as it's been going back to the Nixon era, which you remember very clearly, it doesn't actually mean that the second half has to be a disaster. Two thoughts on sentiment readings right now. At the well, moment. I mean, that's typically a pretty good counter indicator, right? I mean, people get into one side of the boat and typically yeah. means we're going to go the other way. I think Carter can speak to that as well. I mean, I happen to think, again, I think you understand where I am on the entire market. I think we will see a new low at some point over the next couple months. It's just how do we get there? And yeah. I think we get there from going up to 4100 first. And I said it on Fast Money last night, and I said it, I've been saying it on Market Call, a move back to 4100 effectively is an 8 or 9% move from current levels. And I think that's reasonable to think. We've seen it before, and we've seen it a couple times, quite frankly, over the last six months. And I think that's what we're setting up for. I think that's going to be an opportunity to get out of some things. By the yeah. way, I think it's going to coincide, again, just my opinion, with Apple earnings towards the end of July, And then I think Apple's going to disappoint, not necessarily on the quarter, but I think their guidance might be soft. And I think that's what takes the market down probably to 3,400 or thereabouts in the S&P. Yeah, you know, Carter's going to speak to this chart. My inbox just got a worthcharting.com update with a a, a near-term S&P 
chart and target. So we're going to hit that in a second when he gets here. The NASDAQ 100, though, guys, a little bit of a different circumstance. I mean, it looks fairly similar, obviously, the S&P 500. But when you think about that move, if it were to have a 10% move, it gets it back to those May highs. And you look at that breakdown level from early May, that was 13,000. I mean, that looks like staunch technical resistance. And again, that really might mm-hmm. play, you know, the story of the NDX really maps to what you're talking about is what is the path forward, some of these largest tech names, and what is their guidance going to look like for the current period, you know, and then obviously, you know, for the balance of the year, that's the NDX. Russell 2000, let's look at the small caps for a second here. You know, you were all over this trade on the breakout late last year, but that failed breakout led to a series of lower highs here. And then we had that breakdown right about that key level here, guy. That was about 1800 or so in the IWM or the Russell 2000 here. Look at that level. Look at that downtrend. Look at that early May breakdown level. Are we likely to see the small cap stocks lead us to the upside if we were to have a counter trend rally? Yeah, I think that would be the one you have to watch clearly because I think, in my opinion, it's probably the most overdone to the downside. I think what this has been telling you is people, again, selling first, asking questions later to the most economically sensitive names, theoretically. And when you hear each day, you know, we're in a recession, we're going in a recession, I think that's forced people to sort of, again, sell now, ask questions later. So I do think the IWM can bounce in a more meaningful way. But with that said, Dan, and you look at this chart, we're still in a very significant downtrend. And oh, by the way, the moving average absolutely is rolling over. So I think that re- that subsequent rally to that support line, now yeah. support becomes resistance, which will coincide with that downtrend line, is going to be virtually impossible, again, in my opinion, to break to the upside. So I think we get there and I think we fail once we do. Yeah, right. So let's keep an eye on that 18 to 1900 level in the Russell 2000, because again, I, I agree with you. And listen, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, we mentioned this on numerous occasions, is that, you know, the violent rally that we had into that May or excuse me, that March, mm-hmm. you know, Fed meeting on the way out and then the top and then just kind of making new lows and just kind of the gut punch going through those lows. I mean, you know, guy, we can have 4,000 or 4,100 targets or 1,900 targets, you know, or 13,000 in, in the NDX doesn't mean they're going to get there these bounces are becoming a bit more anemic but maybe the aforementioned carter braxton worth can help us figure it out and what do these kind of counter trend moves look like in a bear market here because like i said i just got an email from him from we're charting on the s p 500 carter come in here talk to us about it and then maybe the s p 500 how you're thinking about small caps and the ndx how are you bud i'm good you know i was thinking if he doesn't say aforementioned i might just <laughs> Be silent. You may talking. drop out. That's a good one. Yeah, just drop out. It's such a great word. Yeah, well, I think up. I'm playing for a bounce here. That's the point of that communication midday with institutional clients and worth charting clients. Look, the sentiment gets one way. You see it all the time, right? Think about it. Let's go back to the most loved thing of all. Most loved. The hard stop. Tech. What happened? You got wrecked. Then what's most loved of late? Energy. And now look what's happening. Guess what's hated? The market. Now, mean reversion is not to imply a perfect system, but at extremes, when it really feels like it can't do anything but keep going up or keep going down, it's usually right to play the other side. And so the S&P gets awfully extreme. So the NASDAQ 100, the Russell, and I think we get a counter trend here. We've had three distinct bounces. What's wrong with getting a fourth? Yeah, Carter, real quick, I agree with you. Obviously, I think you heard what Dan and I were saying. What do you think the speed, you heard sort of my take on this thing. I think we sort of grind higher up until Apple earnings at the end of July. That's a month from now. Am I too, not optimistic, but is my time frame wrong, do you think? 
Well, that's right. There are two things. It's magnitude and duration. So in terms of duration, how, how many days or sessions might uh, this balance continue? The other three, since the peak on Gen 4, have been somewhere between, let's say, 8 and 20, 22 sessions. So one week to, to four weeks. What you're talking about in terms of duration would be just about that, about four weeks. In terms of magnitude, they've been somewhere between, let's say, 8 and 12 percent. We're 1 percent off the low now. Why can't it be more than that? I think it will be both more duration and more magnitude. Well, there you go. So runaway breakout. Listen, at some point, it makes sense with just those numbers that we saw about how bad this kind of second quarter is and, and maybe a run into, you know, a little, little what do they call that, window dressing into quarter end. Who knows here? But, you know, I got to say this, you know, guy, you style yourself as a heck of a, I don't know, a rock and roll aficionado, somebody mm-hmm. who also knows a lot about, you know, just, I, I mean, listen, you know, we, we throw something out there and you get the pop culture reference Useless here. Shit is what yeah, you well, th- well, that's what I'm getting at. But Carter yeah. Braxtonworth is not in New York. City. He's not in his office over there at Worth Charting. He's in the Big D. He's in Dallas. And I'm going to throw out a song lyric to you. And I want to see if you kind of know. You know this song. You're going to get this song. It's like Dallas got the soft machine. So if we're going to keep trucking, do you have any idea what the reference is to a soft machine down there in Dallas? A soft machine down there in Dallas has been the football franchise literally for the last 20 <laughs> years because they can't get out of their own way. All right. You know, so- apparently it's America's team. I mean, which is complete horseshit. Yeah. If you're a Dallas Cowboy fan and if you don't live in the state of Texas, you are effectively a fair weather fan. And if I've offended anybody out there, too bad. Back right. to you, Dan. All right. Soft machine refers to a marga- margarita machine, which was invented in Dallas, Texas. How you, how, how you like that? And that is from the song Truckin'. So when you're out there, you know, Carter, you're talking your charts and markets with some of your friends down throw there. throw that in. I'll just All right. Well, this is also, you know, Texas is kind of the home of oil, right? When you think about this. And we got to talk a little bit about what's happened here. You know, I, Carter, you have been in the camp that you did not think we were going to get to that blow off top in crude oil that was made a few months ago at 130 here you see what's going on i mean the biden administration is trying to do everything that they can to get the price of oil lower here so we have this kind of tax holiday if you will goldman sachs is curry saying good luck with that not the best idea guy was saying back in late november early december when the biden administration was going to tap the spr the strategic petroleum reserve you also said Good luck. Not the best idea. And I got to tell you, I don't think it's the best idea that Joe Biden's going over to meet with MBS over there in Saudi Arabia. So all of us are kind of in agreement here. We don't like some of the qualitative you know, measures that are being taken to take down the price of oil. Carter, what's your take on this chart of the crude oil? Because Guy and I had it up yesterday. We thought there was a distinct possibility that there's a tape bomb that out that's out there that causes it to break that. You see the 200-day moving average at about 91. I know that you like to use the 150 is probably you know a little lower than that what's your take on crude here well, i just think to myself about any visits to mbs if he invites you down at the basement you say oh, let's let's have the meeting up here instead of down there um, i mean listen wait to be very frank I like windows not I laughing not laughing you know again we're laughing oh, at the absurdity, yeah, of, of, the absurdity. Of, of it yes i mean a horrible you situation chop someone we, up in the basement yes, and just yes. get away with it and pretend everything's normal yes yeah so independent of that, I think the, the only way to characterize the circumstance is that markets can often quickly discount a great deal of what at the time is unknown. And again, repeating myself, ad nauseum, it was $90 a barrel, and in six sessions, it went to 130 45% was the last Friday in February to the first Tuesday in March 
and that discount and all of it. You have huge calls from sell-side firms, the most prominent in the world, the biggest broker firm, 190 a barrel, 220 a barrel. And guess what's happened? It's done the exact mm-hmm. opposite. When you start to extrapolate a crazy steep uptrend or downtrend, it almost invariably is time to go the other way. So when we got to 325, what did they say about rates? 4% is coming. Some say five. It's not coming. And guess what? Oil's not going to $200 a barrel. It's going the other way. It's broken trend now. Why can't it go lower? I think it yeah. does. And you were spot. Listen, you were on this. I thought I was feeling like a bit of a, you know, I was feeling my oats, as they say. I'm not sure what that means. But when crude was starting to get back on its horse north of 120, I'm like, we're going to take those levels out for March. And obviously that didn't happen. Well done by you. We're through that trend line. But, you know, we look at stocks as well. And one of the ETFs, the LXE, we got to take a look at it because clearly breaking down as well. And this seems the, the move here seemingly is faster than the underlying commodity. In this sense, it looks like the stocks sniffed it out before the commodity did CBW. Indeed. And this is getting down to, as drawn by you men, a line that represents some level of support. Not a lot, but I'm a buyer. If you get down to that horizontal green line, you'd be about down 24%, I would believe, at that point. We're down mm-hmm. 22, 23 now. I think it's worth a shot. Now, one could say, hold on, but what if oil really gets worse and we do go into recession and it goes much lower? Fine, let's accept that. It's just that the here and now, the sequencing would call for bounce. Even if energy shares are going to go much lower, you can at some points make a judgment that it's gone too far and that a bounce is likely. So on that line, if and as we get to that line, I think it's right to play for bounce. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we know that Chevron and Exxon make up, what, 40% of that ETF, the XLE, and just the rhetoric around these companies. I mean, Guy, you made the case on many occasions that, you know, these companies are much better run. You know, Mm -hmm. last week, June 8th, you know, Exxon made a new all-time high. And, you know, at the time, I think we were all saying that what Carter was just saying, too, the, the euphoria was getting a little bit too much to one side here. But again, you know, the valuations are going to look attractive, especially in the face of what their profit outlook looks like over the next, let's call it year or so, even if crude were to moderate somewhere, you know, in and around that kind of 90 to 100 level. And, you know, you see, Guy, you've said they run much better here. And then the narrative has probably changed around ESG as kind of, you know, energy policy as a source of foreign policy. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Guy, talk to me a little bit about copper. You know, this is one that I think a lot of investors kind to keep an eye on to kind of get a sense for the kind of the pulse of you know global growth that sort of thing and so i do think it's interesting it's a multi-year chart here it shows that that steep ramp out of the pandemic but the long consolidation and here we are we're making not just 52-week lows but you know going back to i think the start of of kind of late 2020 or so what's copper telling we also have a one-year chart to just kind of put this this last bit in in some sort of you know context here not a strong looking chart no it's not and go back to the last one because you know obviously I'm not only a participant here on Market Call, but I'm also a viewer as well. And I learn a lot from Carter. And I look at this chart and I say, you know what? If I did what Carter did a few weeks ago and flipped this around and took a look at it, I would say this is something. I don't know what it is. It's getting ready absolutely to break out to the upside. Then you flip it back the way it's looking. And the same holds true, except in reverse. So here you have the moving averages starting to flatten out, seemingly going lower, right at levels of support. This absolutely looks like it wants to break to the downside. And again, that speaks to probably copper discounting a global economy that's slowing down. And I guess that's maybe doing the Fed's job for it to a certain extent. 
But this does not look particularly promising in terms of the chart, Dan. Yeah. So, Carter, take, take a look at FCX here. This is one of the reasons why Freeport caught my eye. It was down 8% at one point today. And, and again, you know, I mean, whether you like my line or not, it's getting to a level where it kind of held a couple of times or a few times over the last couple of years. What, what's your take on, you know, obviously we, we know that you think that oil and, and, and energy related stocks are probably close to being oversold here, play for a bounce if you see that actually down at 70. What's your take on some of these, you know, some of these kind of mining names so let's look at chart that's on the screen right and discuss it is the green line a level where you can get a bounce sure why it's no different than the first sell-off which you see in april you get the may low and you get a ricochet is it a very bad pattern that implies longer term a big topping out and rolling over it sure does so then one could say hold up so why are we going to play for a bounce if the bigger pattern implies more to go to the downside it's just knowing who you are in the market tactically this 8, 10, 12 session sell-off is extreme. And I would say sequencing calls for a bounce, just as we saw a bounce in May. Structurally, it's a terrible pattern and don't fool around. So mm-hmm. if you're a longer-term player, don't fool around. If you think you have the dexterity or the gumption or the, or the grit to play for a bounce and be wrong and get out and cut it quick, I'd do it. I love that. Grit's a great word. By the way, it's a great book as well. Listen, when I was a kid, there was Mad Magazine and they had something called Spy versus Spy. Well, you brought your own version, <laughs> Carter, of Spy versus Spy in the form of our next chart. So let's take a look at this because I love when you do this stuff. Well, you know, I, well, <laughs> I like these charts too. I like that nice blue, two colors, you know, sort of paint by color for the remedial. And I'd start with myself in that category. The point is sometimes the simplest is the best. Two colors. Here's, here's what it is, just what it says it is. It's the S&P 500 total return versus the S&P 500. And the point of this exercise is to always remind oneself, myself, you, that total return is a huge part of long-term investment results, right? Now, if we look at this same juxtaposition longer term, instead of 10 years, let's look at 20. Now you're starting to get in, look at those numbers, up 525 versus 354. Now let's go back as far as the data exists on at least my machine. And basically what you've got is effectively a double, right? And so I wanted to, with this as our backdrop, just look at utilities and talk about utilities in the context of the current market. Yeah, you know, Carter, we were talking about some of these kind of safe haven areas of the market a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I think at the time, this and consumer staples, you thought, you know, we're looking a little too overzealous here. We said that from a valuation standpoint, they don't make a lot of sense. And from a sentiment standpoint, they seem really crowded here. So you had a correction in some of those spots. Is that what's kind of leading you back to utilities here? Uh, yes, just the fact that they have finally succumbed. Uh, and two, based on... I think that yields aren't really going mm-hmm. higher in a meaningful way. You get the sell-off and you get the yield trade. And I think that's the that's the way forward. Exactly. Yeah, I think that, Dan, quickly, that's exactly right. We actually talked about that on Fast Money, I think, or maybe one of the market calls, that if you think yields are going back down in the form of tenure, which I think we collectively do, then utilities are going to start to once again look attractive. And they've sold off pretty substantially. So I'm with CB Dubs on this one. Take a look at this. This is, and this will speak to looking at the total return, by the way. So this is the S&P 500 index, essentially from 1998, just before the dot-com peak, versus the utility sector. And obviously, the S&P beats utilities. Now, what if we did them both as total return? Same time frame. Look at the next chart. 
So those two lines are identical. If you go back from 1998 to present, the orange and the blue line, total return are the exact same return, which is to say for a 25-year period, utilities have kept up with the S&P. If you you asked me to answer that question, I would say there's no chance that's possible. And yet, and one out of 100 people would say that, the S&P 500 utility sector total return equals the S&P total return 25 years. That's incredible. It speaks to the importance of yield. But we've got some XLU charts, and let's look at those. So this is the ETF, very liquid. It's a double bottom of sorts. But remember that double bottom and put that in the context of the longer term chart and where that's occurred, see the up arrow. And now the next chart depicts the double bottom. And then let's put the trend line on, final chart. Hmm. We undercut the line, but we're getting back above it. I think this is go time. Based on the yield backdrop, based on the fact that it finally has sold off and a low risk reward, sort of low risk entry point. Yeah, no, I think, you know, given what Guy just said about our view on yields, I think it makes some sense. And you obviously have the technical, you know, kind of backing there as a really important input. So we really appreciate that. That is pretty fascinating over 25 years, though, the total return of the S&P versus the, the utilities is, is, is about the same. So from a tactical standpoint, it looks really interesting. Well, listen, Carter, we appreciate you taking some time during your travel to jump on with us. That's great stuff. You know, just keep trucking, buddy. Thank you. I'll offer margarita now. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, listen, that's that's Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Thank you very much. Guy, Adami, what do you say all the time? The cheapest thing you can do is what? Pay, Pay attention. Dan. Pay attention. Pay Last attention. night on our final call during Fast Money, you talked about Amgen. It was like your final call. And you and I had been chatting earlier in the day about the setup in a bunch of some of these pharmaceutical companies I have the XLV chart up here. And I want to speak to this a little bit because, you know, you think this is an area that, again, we were just talking about some defensive sort of sectors, you know, that could be right for a bit of a, a bounce here. Look at this one, though. It broke down below that kind of key support. You think it gets through there. And what are the names that you think lead to the upside in, in the XLV? Well, I can't speak intelligently about the components, but I'll say this knowing somewhat about it. I think some of these big cap pharma names are going to be fine. If you look these were sort of the last names that sold off as the market sold off. They were somewhat impervious. And over the last couple of days of the sell-off, they took these names out to the woodshed. Lilly, Pfizer, Merck, Bristol-Myers specifically. But Amgen, I mentioned last night, because that was a name that recently made an all-time high, did trade off with the rest of the names, but not nearly to the extent. And I thought that was trying to tell you something. So that's what I was speaking of. Now, to your point, we got through that support level as represented in the red line, and we're back up to it now. If I'm being true to the technicals, I would say, you know what, it's got to break through there in a meaningful way to be aggressively bullish. But I do think we're going to trade back to that moving average, and we'll see what happens if and when we get there. It doesn't look great. Moving averages are rolling over. But I think if the market can find its footing here, I think some of these big cap pharma names are going to do okay, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, again, what we're going to try to do is point out some of these things where, you know, like there's opportunities from a trading perspective or from a longer term valuation perspective. I wanted to hit you on one thing, Guy. We didn't talk about this yesterday, but, you know, this kind of caught my eye. You know, a company called DocuSign, right? Mm. And you know what they are. We all Mm. kind of did a bunch of DocuSigns, if you will, during the pandemic. You know, the stock is down 80% from its all-time highs last year. Say that again. I mean, it's it's almost, you know, you think about that, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, 80%. Yeah. And, you know, Facebook or whatever they call themselves now, I'm not particularly interested, is down almost 70% from its peak. And that was a trillion dollar company. I mean, these yeah. are 
these are once in a, these are generational moves. Well, not generational because we have seen them over the last couple decades, but it's pretty remarkable when you see moves of this magnitude. And quickly, you have to ask yourself: Mark Zuckerberg is going on Jim Cramer's show and doing some yeah. meta thing. You know, it speaks to me. What that says is you know, he feels vulnerable here, and he thinks he needs to do something. Anyway, please continue. I know no, you're get listen, a tangent, guy, but. that's a great point. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, has not been on a show on CNBC probably since the year that they went public back in 2012. And I also think it's important to note that when you have these high-profile hedge funds blowing up, you like like Tiger Global, you know, down 52 percent off of assets of tens and tens and tens of billions. Who's the incremental buyer for some of these things? Well. Well, it's kind of interesting that Mark Zuckerberg, who are, no matter whether it's Kara Swisher interviewing him or he's mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill by some of these dummies in Congress, he gets owned all the time. Now, this is likely to be, you know, I think Jim's probably going to try to tease out some of the areas in which the company is pivoting to. But the fact that he's trying to speak to a retail audience and Jim owns a great retail audience of investors, you know, it really says to where we are in the market. My point about DocuSign guy, this was really interesting. It's like, how often do you see scenarios where a CEO steps down and is removed immediately when there's not some sort of fraud or something like that going on? And again, I'm not suggesting that's the case, but that was the headline yesterday in DocuSign. And it really speaks to the fact that what's likely happening here is the board's lost faith in him. Investors have lost faith in the guy and he's gone. And look at this thing, man. It is basically round tripped. It's Below its pandemic lows, it's round trip to this late 2019 highs. And I just think it's important to kind of put some of this stuff in context. We remember seeing this in 01 and 02, but it's important that investors realize that we got used to this sort of stuff back then. You might have to start getting used to it right now. I'm just curious your thoughts on that headline because, you know, CEOs showing the door that quickly is not something that's, you know, all too common. No, and you think about, to your point, I mean, think nine months ago, it was, he was probably, you know, the board probably could not have been more pleased with the job he was doing, how quickly things turn. And the job of a board effectively is to hire and fire the CEO. And in this case, it seems like, you know, not knowing all the details, that seems like what's going on. But something interesting is going to happen here. I mean, we might come back a month or two months from now. So, you know, it was interesting, Dan, when you brought up DocuSign on June 22nd, how that marked a short-term bottom in the stock. And I think that's exactly what you're going to see. Look, it does not look great, the chart, obviously, but this is a pretty interesting level to your point about where we've round tripped to and I think you could absolutely see a relief rally here and would coincide, oddly enough, with the headline of his departure. Yeah. And just to make one last point is that, you know, again, the stock's down to 80 percent. It trades at five times this year's expected sales, about two and a half billion dollars. Still pretty good here, you know, and only about four and a half times next. So this was a stock that was trading at a multiple of sales that was absolutely ridiculous at their highs. So, again, you know, I, I'm with Guy. You know, you want to see this sort of these sorts of headlines from a sentiment standpoint. One last thing, Guy, before we get out of here, I know we're in O. T as you will. Let's look at this ARK ETF because this is in the same sort of context mm-hmm. in a way. You know, is this thing starting to try to bottom? The S&P mm-hmm. made a new low just in the last couple of weeks from that May low. The ARK did not make a new low. And look at some of the lines that I've drawn. These are just simple. This goes back to the pandemic low. We held that. We did not make a new low. And then look at that pre-pandemic high up there at 60 bucks. And you see the 200-day up there at 80 bucks. I mean, if this thing, if the market were to rally, this should go up, what, 2x of that of the S&P 500? That's exactly right. I mean, you can get a 25, 30% move here on the back of a 9% rally in the S&P 500 that I think is coming without question. So your leverage might be right here in the ARK ETF. It doesn't mean things are fixed there. It doesn't mean that portfolio is by any stretch of the imagination uh, now intact. 
But I do think you could see a, one of these mind-numbing rallies. So we again, a month from now into Apple earnings, we could be talking about an ARK ETF that's rallied 25 or 30%, and an, and an S&P 500 that's rallied some 9%. And then we're going to have a much different conversation because I'm and I don't want to say I'm convinced, but I can sort of see this scenario playing out. You know, rally into Apple earnings. Yeah. Apple quarter's okay. The guide is lousy. And that takes us the next leg lower. Well, that's your that's a great point. I mean, the higher we go into Q2 earnings season, the more risk there is to the disappointments, right? The lower the expectations are, the better it is for the market. So, you know, we've seen that play out over the last couple of quarters in different instances. All right, well, listen, Guy, we covered a lot of ground. We covered a lot of ground today. Listen, that's what we do. We got Carter Worth from Dallas, Texas. I dig Carter Worth. I mean, you're always here. You are sort of the the rock, the pillar, um, the buoy of market call. (laughs) And I don't know what I am, but I have a good time. And that's it, folks. I want to thank Carter for joining us and thank our sponsors, FactSet. We are powered by Open Exchange. If you like what you heard, didn't like, enjoyed it, say something on the Twitter, send us a note. I don't know what you, you know, all those types of things, right, Dan? Is that cool? All we'll be back it, tomorrow, 1 p.m. with EY from SoFi. And we got a special market call on Friday since Monday was a holiday. We'll be back at 11 a.m. That's two hours earlier than usual. So set your clocks, peeps. Later. Later.